Hi, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for being here. A lot of people didn't expect it. <laughs> so my name is uh, Daniele Di Benedetto. I am the lead engineer of the cryptography engineering team here at Horizon Labs. We have a nice school office in uh, Via Tortona. And my personal objective for today is for you to leave the room uh, with a concrete idea on what are zero-knowledge proofs, how they are made, and uh, the modern construction, and basically what we use nowadays. A huge disclaimer before starting, there will be some maths here and there, but I tried to keep everything as simple as possible so all of you could understand. But uh, I will do a lot of simplification and I will say a lot of imprecise things. So if you're a mathematician or a cryptographer, leave the room. No, <laughs> I'm joking. But cover your eyes and ears. Okay, so. We will start from the first very simple interactive protocols and we will reach them with the further construction and so on up until we arrive to the modern construction, Snark, Starks and Virtual Machine. And then we will see uh, some concrete use cases mainly related to the blockchain and the cryptocurrency world. That's what we are interested in. So the term zero knowledge was, was uh, created first in 1985 by the MIT researcher Goldwasser, Mikali, and Rakoff. The research back at the time was uh, investigative on interactive protocol in which an entity called the prover wanted to uh, show to another entity called the verifier that uh, a given statement is valid. And the, the research was mainly focused on preventing a cheating prover to convince a verifier that what the prover is claiming was correct, even if it wasn't. What Goldwasser and Mikali did was to turn a bit the problem around and said, okay, what happens if I don't trust the verifier? So they coined, the, they, they, they invented another additional property that is called zero knowledge. In, uh, and with the zero knowledge, the prover is able to prove to the verifier that uh, a given statement, a given claim is indeed true, but without revealing any other details rather than the fact that the statement is indeed true. For instance, I can prove you that uh, I'm older than 80 years old, but uh, without revealing my age. So you will know that I'm older than 80 years old, but you will know nothing else. And this property is called zero knowledge. We desired two additional properties, that is, if the prover claims that some statement is true, and it is indeed true, then the verifier must be convinced of it, and this is called completeness. But if the prover is cheating and claims that the statement is true, even if it isn't, then the verifier must spot the lie, basically. So it must not accept, and this property is called soundness. Let's see a very simple example to understand it. So in this example, Alice is colorblind and is holding two balls, so one blue and one red, but Bob is not. And Bob wants to prove to Alice that he is not colorblind, but without revealing to Alice the coloration of each ball. So which ball is blue and which ball is red. So in order to do this, 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 this protocol is, is done by Alice, so she puts the ball behind her back and she decides if to switch them or not. After that, she shows the ball to Bob and asks him if the balls have been switched or not. Of course, if this experiment is done only a single time, then, okay, Bob, of course, if Bob is claiming the truth, so he's not colorblind, then he will always succeed in understanding if the balls have been switched or not. If the Bob, is, uh, Bob instead is colorblind, and he has still a probability of succeed, 
15%. Okay, so just, he just guesses, and by chance it happened, the guess happens to be correct. Okay, if Alice decides that this 50% error probability is too much, she can repeat the experiment another time, and another time, and another time, and another time. So some simple math, the probability for Bob to guess randomly correct uh, each time is one and a half. After repeating the experiment, the probability for Bob to guess incorrectly all the n times is one over two to the power of n. So we say that the probability decreases exponentially. It means that if this number n is sufficiently high, after this n tries, this quantity becomes small, approaches zero. So therefore, therefore after that, Alice is reasonably convinced that Bob knows the coloration, and we say that the protocol is complete. After n tries, the probability of Bob to guess incorrectly all the n times approaches zero. And so the probability of Bob to cheat is very, very, very small if n is sufficiently high. Therefore, the protocol is sound. And we have seen for how the protocol is built. At the end, Alice doesn't know which ball is blue and which ball is red because Bob only tells her if she switched the balls or not. And so the statement, the, the, um, this protocol is also zero knowledge. Uh, please, guys, interrupt me any moment if you have uh, curiosity. Okay, so we can understand a few things from the protocol. First, that all these kind of zero knowledge protocols are always called the um, interactive and re uh, challenge and response protocol. So a party, a prover, claims that he knows something. The verifier challenges him with some questions. Uh, in the previous case, it was Alice asking, I switched the, did I switch the ball or not? And uh, if Bob guesses correctly, then the verifier gains cough confidence that the prover indeed uh, knows, uh, uh, indeed is proving a valid statement. Of course, this is, the, the, the previous protocol is not perfectly complete and sound because there is always a small error probability, a small probability that Bob corre guesses correctly all the times. It approaches zero, can be infinitely low, but it's not zero. And this will be always the case. So these zero knowledge protocols are always probabilistic, means that there will be always a small probability that the prover is cheating. Okay, and uh, we say that if the prover is able to succeed in cheating, this, this, the, so the soundness property, this is usually formulated against the prover that have unlimited computational power. If we relax this requirement and we ask the prover, okay, the prover has limited computational power. We say that the prover has, is a probabilistic polynomial time algorithm. It means that it can always done a limited number of action in order to break the soundness of the protocol. In this case, uh, these protocols made uh, an argument systems, and they're usually based on cryptographic assumption, such that if you break this cryptographic assumption, then you break the soundness of the protocol. Uh, but let's see a concrete example. So the discrete logarithm problem is a cryptographic assumption used in a wide variety of crypto system. Actually, most of all, think about, uh, I don't know, uh, digital signatures, for instance. Uh, all the public key cryptography is based on this assumption. So this discrete logarithm problem says that if I have three numbers, g, y, and x, and g is fixed, is known by everyone, I choose y randomly, this problem said that it's difficult to find an x such that x is the logarithm with respect to the base g of y, or to say the same, y equals to g to the power of x. 
Of course, this is very trivial. In if g, x, and y are real numbers, so if we are in the continuous world, this, this is nothing. It's very trivial. But it can, it, it can be seen that this is very hard if these numbers comes from, are discrete and comes from specific groups of finite order. So they have a finite number of elements, and this number of elements is a prime number. There is no proof for it. It is shown in practice that it's computationally hard. And it's computationally hard for a prover with, uh, an attacker with uh, limited computational capabilities again. Please. Okay, so g, x, and y, this problem is, 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 is hard if g, x, and y are discrete numbers. So they, discrete means that they can take only a fixed number of values, I don't know, from 1 to 11, and only like natural. So 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. If you, like, from, if you consider real number, for instance, if between 1 to 11, this will be infinite. You know? Because you can say 1.1, 1 1.001, 1.0001, these are infinite. Okay? But in the, con in the normal case, so with continuous number, this problem is trivial. So computing a logarithm, it's, uh, it's easy, it's nothing. But it turns out that in the discrete world, considering a uh, uh, set of numbers that have only a prime number of uh, numbers, <laughs> okay, sorry, uh, then this is hard. This is very hard to do. So the best, uh, I remember that the best algorithm probably needs to do like something like, I'm simplifying here, two to the 1,128 number of steps. And this is bigger like the, the number of atoms in the universe. So a prover, an attacker can always succeed in doing this after having computed to the 128 operation. It will never happen. Uh, did I answer the question? Yeah. Okay, so let's see a new protocol. Uh, in this protocol, Alice, the prover, wants to prove that once fixed the gene known by both prover and the verifier, she claims, and once fixed the public came Y, Alice claims that she knows an X such that Y equals G to the power of X. Okay, that she knows the discrete logarithm of Y with respect to the base G. So the protocol is as follows. Alice samples a random V and computes this quantity T and sends it to the verifier. The verifier samples a random challenge C and send it to the prover. The prover computes this quantity R equals Y minus CX, and at this point the verifier does this check. It computes G to the R times Y to the C and checks if this number is equal to the T sent the first time by the prover. If yes, then Bob is convinced that Alice knows X. And you can see why from the proof here. So, uh, by applying some properties of the exponential, if we replace the value of r, v minus cx, uh, y equals g to the x, if the claim is true, then the result is g to the v that is indeed t. So if Alice didn't cheat, the protocol is complete. About zero knowledge, let's notice that the secret is this one. So Alice wants to prove that she knows x equals, uh, uh, y equals g to the x, and she knows x but she, don't want, she doesn't want to disclose x. So the, security, the real security property is pretty complicated, but for, just to give an idea, we can see that if this challenge is random, then also this number c times x looks random. Since v is also picked at random, then also r equals v minus cx is random. So if someone looks at this number, let's say, 
he could never guess that this number was obtained by doing this operation. It looks completely random. It looks like, okay, I just picked a random number. This means that this R doesn't reveal any information on X. So the protocol is sound. Uh, sorry, the protocol is zero knowledge. Regarding the soundness, the way to Alice for breaking the soundness of the protocol to cheat is that she is able to make this final claim pass without knowing X, okay? But how Alice can do this? She only has control over this randomness sent initially, but she has no control over this randomness because it's picked by the verifier and she has real-time interaction by the verifier, so she cannot predict what is the verifier, what will be the verifier challenge. So after observing C, she doesn't know X. So if we replace, if we solve this equation by X, this X will be equal to R minus V divided by C. And so to cheat, to make this final check pass, if we replace the X here, she needs to find an R such that Y equals G to the R minus V divided by C. But in order to do this, she needed to solve the discrete logarithm problem for this number R. Therefore, but we assume that the discrete logarithm problem is hard to break if a prover has limited computational capabilities. Therefore, for Alice succeeding in doing this, she means that she needs to break the discrete logarithm assumption, that we assume it's hard. So the protocol is sound under the assumption of the hardness of the discrete logarithm. This assumption holds for prover, for attacker with the limited computational capabilities. So this is indeed an argument system and this sound with very high probability, that is the same probability in a prover succeeding in breaking the discrete logarithm. Any question? Yes. Yes, of course. So the protocol is, 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 is fixed, okay? So the Bob, the verifier, knows that Alice will send this, some randomness. He needs to reply with this rather randomness. Alice will compute this quantity, and Alice knows that Bob will check this. So the protocol is public. Everything is public. Okay. There is a problem with the protocols we have seen up until now, is that uh, all these protocols require a continuous interaction between the prover and the verifier, an interaction that must be an, on an online interaction, okay? And uh, you can understand that this is unfortunate a reason for a high number of applications. So to, to do a zero-knowledge proof, I always need to have someone uh, available online to, uh, with which exchanging the messages, okay? Luckily, in 1988, Amos Fiat and Adi Shamir invented a meter to eliminate this interaction. So Alice, she can, she can still prove that she knows the discrete logarithm without having to, ha without having to have a verifier, another entity that does the pro the, the, this message exchange with R. So they basically created a way to transform any non-interactive protocol into non-interactive one. And this is the non-interactive zero-knowledge protocol, NIZK. Okay, how is it possible to do this? Fiat and Shamir noticed that uh, basically the only role of the verifier, it doesn't do anything, it just sends a random challenge, okay? And that's it, it does, does nothing else. So they say, okay, what if we replace a verifier with a safe random number generator, okay? With a random function. A random function is a function such that uh, when supplied uh, with an input, it will answer with an output, uh, that is independent of the input. It means that if you look at the output, you could never guess what the input was, 
and such that with different inputs will always output different stuff, different data, but with the same input, it will output the same data. So they say, okay, let's replace the verifier with a random function that the prover can execute on its own machine, okay? So she sends, the prover sends messages to this random function, the random function will answer with a random challenge, just like the prover did, and at this point, she can publish a proof that he executed the protocol correctly. Means that she published the so-called transcript of the protocol. So all the messages exchanged between Alice and this random function. So at the end, whoever wants to verify, uh, look at the transcript of the protocol, so the message exchange, check that uh, everything was executed correctly, Alice respected the protocol, and that the final verification was fine. And this will be really a non-interactive zero-knowledge proof. Alice can post it somewhere, Anyone can download it and verify offline whenever he wants. There are two problems with this. Uh, sorry, this, this random function is also called uh, random oracle, okay, from the, from the name of the security model in which this stuff is proved, but let's forget it. So there are two problems. First, we need to make sure that the prover will use the correct random function. Uh, we, make, we need to prove it, otherwise the prover can use whatever he wants, cannot even be a random function, okay? And the second, this random function don't ex doesn't exist in nature. So a function that you execute deterministically and outputs random stuff, true random stuff, doesn't exist. Let's not discuss why, because this can become a very uh, metaphysical. Tr just trust me. So true randomness doesn't exist in nature. But uh, luckily, we have cryptography comes to our help. We have a so-called cryptographic hash function. Many of you have already <laughs> heard this term. So an hash function is a function that takes an input of arbitrary length and outputs always an output of fixed length. And this, this fancy notation to make the mathematicians happy, uh, happy with the following property. It's difficult to find two numbers, even of different length, that leads to the same output. This is called the collision resistance property. And second, that it's difficult to invert the hash function. So it's difficult from the output to understand what was the input. And you can see that, uh, okay, this seems a good approximation of a random function. It, it's, it's like a random function because two different inputs will correspond different outputs thanks to the collision resistance property. And it's difficult, the, the, the output is independent of the input because from the output you cannot understand what the input was thanks to the pre-image resistance property. The real problem is that it isn't, it isn't. So it's not a true random function. It's a good approximation of it, but it's not. And this creates problem uh, the, in security proof for crypto, but that's stuff for cryptographers. We don't, we don't care, I don't care. Sorry, Marcus. And so it's good enough for our purpose. Let's stick with it. Don't ask any other question. Uh, and this solves also the other problem because now, like uh, you asked, in the protocol you can say, okay, this protocol will happen like this and you need to use this hash function, okay? So now you force the prover to use this hash function. He could use another hash function, sure, but then he creates a proof that uh, no one will be able to verify. So I am an honest verifier, I follow the protocol, I use that hash function, the prover used another one, the proof verification will fail. So he can do it, but there's, no, no use for it. Let's see how we can change the previous protocol to make it non-interactive, okay? So again, Alice claims that she knows an X such that Y equals G to the power of X. She, says she computes randomness V 
t equals g to the v, and sends this message and all the other pu public parameters to the random oracle. Uh, the slide is a bit misleading. There is no, there is no line interaction. So this random oracle, thanks to Fiat-Shamir transform, it's an hash function, a specific hash function, executed on the prover's machine. So this means that Alice executes on his machine the hash of these terms, and she gets the challenge t. That thanks to the properties we have seen before, it's a good approximation of a random challenge. So it's like here there, is a there was a verifier that answered to L with the challenge c. Random. Like before, Elish computes r equals v minus cx and publish tr somewhere online on a website. At this point, whoever wants to verify this claim, Bob downloads from the website tr. She needs to replay the protocol. So again, she asks the random oracle for the challenge c. That this means, thanks to Fiat Shamir, to execute this hash function on his machine with the same inputs as Alice and she, he gets the random challenge C, and like before, he does his part of the verification. So he computes g to the r times y to the c, and checks that the quantity he gets is the same as the one posted by Alice in his proof. Please. The prover function on the right, um, that can be set up by anyone, right? That doesn't need to be set up by a trusted party? Like this one, the hash function? The, the oracle on the the oracle is, in reality, an hash. the slide is a bit misleading. Yeah, so right. the oracle is an hash function. And you can say, OK, this is a PIPO protocol. And in order to create proofs for PIPO protocol, goofy protocol, PIPO in Italian, you need to use SHA-256. OK? If you use SHA-3, it won't work. So this, proof, this verification won't pass. Exactly, anyone. So you download it, you do these very same checks, and you check that you compute this, and you check that the value you get is the same as the one posted by Alice. And you anticipated, you might have noticed that if we, reply, if we uh, substitute this randomness, t, that is computing this way, with the hash of a given message, that again looks random, thanks to the properties of the hash function, then this is a digital signature on the, yes? Sorry, go ahead. This is a digital signature on the message, M, that is called Schnorr signature. We can call this secret key. We can call this public key. This is called the Schnorr protocol, and that is a Schnorr digital signature. Please. There's some way to guarantee that it is like it's related to G, that it's G raised to some power. Yes. Some yes, because sorry. Yes, because if it isn't, this check won't pass. So this G to the R must be equal to, to G to the V minus CX. And this, 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 this. It must be equal to T that is G to the V. So here there are some simplification. If this is not a G to the V, this verification won't pass. Okay, and that's consistent? Like that's a consistent feature of zero knowledge proofs, that proof? This is a way to give a zero knowledge proof of this, okay? okay. And it's, it is done like this because it is based on the discrete logarithm that is an assumption that is hard to break. So, and we have seen before that if Alice wants to cheat, she doesn't know X, she needs to solve this. 
but this is solving the discrete logarithm problem for this quantity r, no, v minus r divided by c, and no more for this quantity. It's the same. Okay. And solving this means having, uh, not, it's not doable if you have limited the computational capability. It's doable, but like uh, till the end of the world. Probably you won't even make it for the end of the world. Okay, the security properties are the same as before. We need only to about the soundness because now we don't have a true random challenge. Again, this is a good, the hash is a good approximation of a random function, but it isn't. So we need to be careful about the data we put as input of the hash function because now the Alice might have some control over the random challenge and she can pre-compute pre some value and break the soundness of the protocol. So for instance, she can pre-compute a good V and a good C and she can solve offline the discrete logarithm problem and then she will break the protocol because he, he, she was able to solve the discrete logarithm problem for this, but she doesn't know X. But okay, so don't want to confuse, so let's not go into the details. This additional property is called adaptive soundness. It was formulated because this is not a random function, a true random function. Okay, so up until now we have proven very simple statements, but what happens if these statements are much more complex? So the, usually we are interested in this kind of uh, statement, so we want to prove that the prover executes an, any arbitrary computation that we represent with this function f, any arbitrary computation, providing some input x called the witness, because the prover usually wants to keep it private, and producing some output to y called the public input which is important because it's the, this, this is publicly known and it's the only data the verifier can trust to verify that indeed the prover has executed this computation correctly provided this input. So in the previous problem, for instance, x will be the secret key, y will be the public key, and f will be the discrete logarithm function. We can give a definition of proving system. So a proving system for a CI problem without any loss of generality, because anything, CI is a generalization of everything, because F can be any arbitrary computation. It's a triple of algorithm setup, prove and verify. Setup takes a specific encoding of the, of the arbitrary program to be proven, and we will see what does this means a few slides later. And outputs what is called the common reference string. This is another term that you might have heard. This is simply a set of data shared by the prover, both the prover and the verifier trusted by both, and that is used by both during the protocol. So it can be, I don't know, some expensive pre-computed data needed for the protocol that is pre-computed, so she, the prover doesn't need to do it each time. Uh, can be uh, set up parameters. So for instance, the common reference string in the Schnorr example before would be the G, the base of the logarithm, and the hash function to be used. SHA-256, SHA-3, uh, MIMC, whatever. Um, okay, this, this, this algorithm is usually very expensive to run, so, but we are lucky because it must be run only once for a given statement, uh, for a given statement F. There is the proof that takes as input the common reference string, the witness and the public input, and outputs a proof so that the prover knows an input such that the output y is indeed given by executing this computation f. So the proof will be the, the, this one we have seen before. 
The verify takes as input the common reference string, the proof, and the public input. That is, again, the only data the verify can trust to check this, the validity of this statement. And that puts true if the proof indeed proved that the prover executed this computation correctly with the correct input producing the correct output, false otherwise. Okay, so a very simple way to prove the computational integrity statement would be to, let's forget about zero knowledge for a second. The prover executes the function f of x and sends the output to the verifier. The verifier knows f, it's in the protocol parameter, it's in the common reference string. Knows y is the public input. So he receives the x, the, the x from the prover. The verifier recomputes f of x and check if the output is indeed equal to the, to, to the expected one. If not, the prover has passed the wrong, the wrong uh, witness, so the proof is false. This, there is a problem with this. So first, the verifier, to check the validity of the statement, must uh, re-execute the, the, the computation again. And if the computation is very long or complex, uh, this is unfortunate, especially if you are in a limited environment, so you have a limited device. And the proof will be all this data x that can be very huge. Usually, is all the data produced during the execution of the computation. So it can be very huge. And again, if you want to post this proof, uh, I don't know, in a blockchain, in a blockchain you can post only very limited amount of data. This is very unfortunate. So, we require an additional property that we call the succinctness, okay? So we would like a proof to be, for a given computation, to be smaller than the witness, than the data produced during the computation. And we want the verifier to be more efficient than re-executing the function from scratch. This property is called succinctness. Uh, I want to go into the details on how the succinctness is achieved. The main idea is that the verifier don't publish the, all the proof, but just publishes small randomly picked pieces of the proof. The verifier checks only these small randomly picked pieces and checks that only for these pieces the original CI statement is valid. But he also needs to check on top of it that these little pieces come from an original big proof for that computation. This is called an IOP. Forget it. And moreover, based on the degree of succinctness you want to achieve, a longer, a longer common reference string can, could, could be necessary to be generated, okay? And generated also in a trusted way, so being sure that no one could cheat. This is often called trusted setup. It requires an interactive protocol between some parties to be sure that this stuff was generated correctly and without no one, I don't know, cheating or uh, uh, saving some values that is supposed to be thrown out. And this is called a trusted setup. And uh, you need to do this for every different statement. So if I want to prove another thing, you need to another, another time to do this very complex and long and uh, uh, unpractical process. But this allows you to have very succinct proof and very succinct verifier. Okay, you already know now what are ZK snarks. Zero knowledge, succinct, non-interactive, argument of knowledge, meaning that I know uh, an input for a computational integrity statement for a function f that leads to a given output. So any proving system that outputs a proof of this is a ZK snark. And the usual workflow, starting from a computational integrity statement, is to encode your, your arbitrary computation as a set of uh, 
mathematical equation involving variables that can be either witness or public inputs. And these equations are such that when you, when you replace the variables with the, the correct values of uh, witness and public inputs, all the equations are satisfied, and therefore the computational integrity statement is satisfied. Uh, this equation that are among uh, numbers, discrete numbers, uh, are turned into polynomials and polynomials equation. Why? Because when going to polynomial world, you can collapse all these equations into a single one. So now the, the prover has only to prove one relation or few more, and the verifier has only to check one relation. And this, for a certain degree, allows to achieve succinctness in the proof and in the verifier. And this process is called arithmetization. And this, this, this polynomial, the, the, the fact that this polynomial equation is satisfied is proven via non-interactive zero-knowledge protocol. So at the end, you get a zero-knowledge as an arc. But let's see an example. So uh, an, uh, an arithmetization shared by a wide, a wide variety of proving systems is based on rank one constraint system. This means that take, let's take our arbitrary computation, okay, like the discrete logarithm, and let's express it as a set of multiplication and additions. Or you can see it as an arithmetic circuit. Okay, so it's a circuit uh, with the gates that are only addition and multiplication. Okay, this arithmetization requires you to express all this computation using only this form, only a set of this equation, A times B equals C, where A, B, and C can be variables, so witnesses and public inputs, constants, or linear combination of variables and constants. And these are called constraints. And if all the constraints are satisfied for your computation, then your computational integrity statement is correct. Are called constrained, in fact, to give the idea that the verifier is constraining a prover to supply the correct value for the variables of the, all this equation, whatever their value is, but at the end, this, all this equation must be satisfied simultaneously. And you can see that the same problem can be expressed with this. And remember, in fact, that our purpose for a computational integrity statement is not to compute uh, the output of an arbitrary computation given the input, because we already know the output, and we want that approver supplies the correct input to that function, such that the output is the one we expect. This is difficult, okay? So we need to express any arbitrary long computation using only addition, multiplication, and equalities. And you can imagine that this is a mess if you consider so, like a uh, hash function, like I don't know, SHA, that does all shifts and XORs and bit-to-bit -bit operation and so on. You can see some example here. And uh, um, moreover, one wants to do it by minimizing the number of constraints because it usually leads to better performance in general. And moreover, you need to be sure that the, the, all the equations you wrote really represent the computation you want to enforce. So you should ask yourself, is, are my equation, are my R1C, is my R1CS enforcing all that is, needs to be enforced? Because if not, if you miss a constraint, or if there is a variable that is not linked to any constraints or to any public input, then the prover is able to create fake proofs. So the prover is able to claim is able to supply an, an invalid witness, but you get a uh, proof that the output is the correct one. And this is often uh, very subtle, so it's, 
you, you might be, you know, you need to be careful. Please. Arith, sorry? Like when you were talking about the, the, the f of x, like, like arbitrary computation is like f. The arbitrary computation is f. Yeah. So in our case, it's the discrete logarithm. Okay. So you need to express the discrete logarithm, for instance, using only this, this, these equations. Okay, so only so multiplication, additions, and equalities. Okay, so what, like that, that flattening? That flattening means turning this that you can see as this, but it's not like you concretely represent it as this. You can be, it can be seen as this because it helps in writing this. This flattening is going from the arbitrary computation to a set of equations of this form such that, the so such that proves your computational integrity statement. So the equation represents your f. So you can, uh, you can express, I don't know, uh, the hash function using only a set of this equation. Okay, the prover supplies the input of the hash function. Okay, and uh, this equation checks that the output uh, is the expected one. It's the one that the, the verifier will supply. If not, then some of this equation, you, you don't have an identity zero equals zero somewhere, so the constraint system is not satisfied. That means that uh, the prover doesn't know a certain witness that satisfied the computation. The prover doesn't know the preimage of the hash. Proof verification failed. Another way to do it, similar to R1CS, and in reality is simpler because it really reflects the, the execution of a certain computation is using an, ex, an execution trace. An execution trace is simply a table with the T rows that represents the time, so the step of the computation, and W columns that represent certain values of the computation that we, of, of, that we want to keep of which value we want to keep track over time, okay? And this will be our witnesses. You can enforce, for instance, this is an execution trace for Fibonacci. You can recognize the Fibonacci. There are two types of constraints, a boundary constraints that constrains the initial and final value of the register. So here, I'm proving that uh, I know that the seventh number of the Fibonacci sequence is 34. And so there will be an equation saying, okay, this value must be 34 and the first value must be one. And this will be linked uh, to the public input you can intuitively imagine. And the transitional constraints that are enforced only between adjacent rows involving one or more of the columns, and uh, this will enforce that you correctly transition from this value at this, at this, this execution step to this other value at this execution step, according to the logic of the program. So in these constraints, you will say, okay, uh, at row t plus one must be equal to the sum of the two previous numbers at row t, according to the Fibonacci, uh, to the Fibonacci rule. Um, and uh, this type of arithmetization is, is widely used by ZK Starks. ZK Starks are just snarks. There are a couple of subtlety. They are not succinct but scalable, means that this ZK Starks cares a bit also about the prover time. Of course, if to prove a statement it takes forever, then we have the same problem as for the verifier and the proof sites. This comes at a cost because the proof size is dramatically increased in this case. It's still succinct, but it's bigger, like 10 times or 100 times bigger than a snark proof. And it's transparent, meaning that uh, 
it's instead of non-interactive, well, it's still non-interactive, but it's transparent because it doesn't require trusted setup, so no common reference string. And the only security assumption you need are those of the hardness of the cryptographic cache function, the security properties we have seen before. That, by the way, if you don't know, they are also quantum resistant. Instead, the discrete logarithm assumption is not quantum resistant. So if quantum computers uh, come, we will need to throw away 90% of the crypto systems that are out there. If we use hash function, no, but not ZK Starks. Not ZK Starks. Starks. ZK Starks enabled ZK Virtual Machine. A ZK Virtual Machine is simply a circuit that encodes the, the functioning of a computer. So our F is the functioning of a CPU with all the memory and the handling also all the memory and the I.O. What is the advantage is that now with a single circuit, we can prove any F. While before, we needed to write as many circuits as the F we wanted to prove. And moreover, this statement must be expressed in a specific instruction set. It's, a, it's like a virtual machine, so it has its own uh, low-level assembly. The good news is that if you create a compiler from any high-level programming language to that uh, instruction set, then anyone will be able to write proofs without knowing, uh, write circuits, without know knowing anything about crypto, without knowing everything about zero knowledge, and so on. So you create a compiler from Java to the instruction set of the ZKVM, you write your Java program like you were doing yesterday, up until yesterday, and you will get first the output of the computation like before, but also a stark proof that your computation is correct. Okay, let's see, to conclude, we're a bit short on time, so I will, I will go fast. Some applications, so privacy coin, of course, we know that Bitcoin claims to have pseudonymous credentials, but it's not true. Many attacks have shown that you can de-anonymize users. So some cryptocurrency like ours, Zcash, Monero, uses ZK snarks. So in a transaction you don't publish on the public blockchain, you don't publish anymore sender, receiver of the money, the amount of money, and so on. You publish a proof, a ZK proof, zero knowledge proof, that reveals nothing about who is the sender, who is the receiver, and which is the amount. But anyone will verify the proof and will be convinced that sender receiver exists, the amount was correct, the signature was correct, everything is fine. But you don't reveal any info. This is a true privacy coin. A succinct blockchain, so we all know the struggle if you want to sync Zen from scratch. <laughs> we need to, and you want to do it fully, you need to validate all the transaction in all blocks, starting from the Genesis block up until today. And if, you, if any of you tried, you know that this requires hundreds of gigabytes of data and requires days to be done, if not weeks. Instead, by leveraging a novel technique called recursive snark composition, you can create a single snark proof of the, efficiently, thanks to the recursion, a single snark proof of the entire blockchain history. A snark proof is few kilobytes of data, or a stark, doesn't matter. Few kilobytes of data requires milliseconds or seconds to be verified. So a full node, your blockchain is just this proof. So anyone downloads this proof, well, how much it takes, nanoseconds, verify it, calls a millisecond, bah, he has, he has synced all the blockchain. This is what MENA protocol does, it's already mainnet, and that's what our LATUS also do. Our certificate proofs have, are also proofs of, succinct proof of the sidechain state, of the entire sidechain state. ZKAD, 
again, <laughs> privacy is protection is, is an urgent matter nowadays. So we want to reveal that I am older than a certain age or that I'm eligible to vote uh, because I, I, am, I have the citizenship in a certain country and so on. But I don't want to reveal anything else. I don't want to reveal my age, I don't want to reveal my name, surname, and so on. You can write as an ARCS or a STARCS that encodes this. For instance, Ethereum Semaphore Protocol does this. It allows through ZK SNARKs to prove that you, are belonging, you belong to a certain group that is eligible to vote, and you can cast your vote too without revealing anything. Uh, and also by preventing double voting and so on. It was long. Thank you if you follow me, thank you if you're not. <laughs>